Do you remember the famous words of Neil Armstrong? One. It's, be, it's better than first and, and second service. Uh, first service said boiler up. Um, so <laughs> second and third service, that's, a, that's better than they did. Uh, but, you know, it's like, wait, what did he say again? Yeah. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Why is it that those words can stay so burned into our brain? Why is it that we can remember those words years after we look at it in school or listen to it and read it? And it's like, man, I can recall that even if it takes me a second, uh, even through the boiler up jokes, I can remember like what was said. Why is that? See, it's not, it's not simply because those are just words spoken. I mean, if Neil Armstrong had said those words sitting in a coffee shop and someone had recorded it and you just got to hear it, it would be like, yeah, whatever. Like, I don't remember that at all. It's not because of just simply the words that were spoken. It's because of where they were spoken. It's where those words were actually spoken that adds a depth and a significance to it. When you realize that he was stepping out of a spacecraft onto the lunar surface, becoming the first human to ever walk on the face of the moon, and you now hear those words, and all of a sudden there's this awe and depth to it simply because those words are matched with that context. And now those words just carry so much weight. One small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Think about it this way. In my line of work, I have the privilege, and I count it a privilege, really, to preach uh, weddings, a lot of weddings, okay? And it's, I actually just really enjoy it for a lot of different reasons, but probably the most significant reason I enjoy preaching weddings is because I get to stand up, up here or wherever else we are um, uh, preaching that wedding, and the young bride and young groom are standing there, and there's this part in the ceremony that I try really hard leading up to the ceremony to remind them that this is so much more than a formality, Like, we're not just going through the motions. We're not just saying words. There's a depth to the words that you're exchanging in this moment of the ceremony where you exchange your vows. And the words of those vows are significant because they are a promise that you're making, a covenant that you're entering into in that moment. And that covenant is between the bride, the groom, and God. And that promise that you make to that person, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, for richer, for poorer, all of the lines, and there's creativity that comes with it. And, but the, the words are the significance, the promise that's made there. It's saying no matter what happens, we're going to live in a lot of different places. We're going to travel to a lot of different places. People are going to come into our lives and go out of our lives. We're going to gain a lot. We're going to lose a lot. We're going to be happy and we're going to be sad. But through it all, I'm making this promise to you. Man, I love that. But even more than the wedding ceremony that takes place, what I like even more is being a part of a multi-generational church. And there are Sundays, not today, but there are Sundays where I get to drive onto this campus. And every once in a while, I'll see a couple, an older couple. And I'll know who they are because they are part of our church and they have been for years and years. And I'll watch them hold hands walking into church and I'll think, man, they've been married 50 plus years, 55 years. And they've probably lived in multiple places and gone through multiple experiences. They've had a lot of highs and a lot of lows, a lot of triumphs and a lot of trials. And 50 plus years later, they're still together holding hands. 
Why is it that coming into the church parking lot just on a routine Sunday morning can oftentimes impact me more so than even being part of a wedding ceremony? It's because for that couple, walking into the church after 55, sometimes even 60 years of marriage, it's not just words that were spoken. You see, in the ceremony, there was a promise made. Walking into the church that day, there's a promise kept. It's powerful. Here's the point. Many of us here today, we go through all kinds of different things in life. You can't have a room with this many people in it and not have just so many different experiences, both in our past and in our present. There are people in the room right now walking through a time of just normalcy, and it's good, and everything's fine. And there's people that are walking through perhaps what they would describe as the sweetest season of their life. And then there's some of us in the room carrying a weight that we're not sure we can keep going carrying. And whatever we're going through, there are times in life where we don't really feel like anyone can understand it. Like, how, how could you possibly understand what I'm going through? And then you have friends in your life, and you have neighbors, coworkers that say, hey, man, I know what you're going through. I've been there. And you think to yourself, wait, like, how could you possibly know what I'm going through? And you make your way to church, and you, you walk around, and you come into a worship service, and someone says to you, man, God knows what you're feeling. God knows what you're experiencing. God loves you. And you think to yourself, man, those words... Those are words to me right now. How do I actually know that the God who spoke the universe into being with his words actually loves and cares for me? How, do I, how could I possibly know that the God who created everything understands what it is that I'm experiencing right now? Sure, I read in his word that he loves me and he cares for me. I, le- I read in his word that I'm called to lean on his understanding and not trust in my own ways. But man, how do I know? that those aren't simply words that are spoken at a coffee shop, if you will? How do I know that that's not just a promise that's been made, but a promise that's been kept? Well, here's one of the challenges for us understanding that those are not simply promises made, but promises kept, is that we are taught and conditioned oftentimes, not everybody, but a lot of us, to base so much of our life on our feelings. Life is good when I feel good. Life is bad when I feel bad. I'm treated well when I feel good. I'm treated bad when I feel bad. And there is some truth to all of that. Your feelings can be a wonderful indicator of where you're at in life. But if you base everything about your life on how you're feeling, you're doomed. We've learned this. I mean, I look at my own life, and if I look back and I'm like, this is a good thing because I feel good, and I'll do it as long as I feel good. But the moment I don't feel good, I don't have to do that anymore. This is why we have what I would call an epidemic in our culture around marriage. Divorce is just this thing. Like, hey, if you don't feel good in your marriage, it doesn't make you feel good all the time, then get out. You can, if it feels good, stay with it. If it feels bad, you don't have to stay with it. It's all about you and how you feel and your feelings and your emotions. And look, emotions and feelings aren't bad in and of themselves. But when they are the sole source of our ability to view life as being meaningful or not, we're doomed. Because feelings come and go. You know this if you're honest. One day you wake up feeling good. The next day you wake up feeling confused and frustrated and you don't even know why, right? And many of you are like, yeah, like that was today. I woke up, I'm angry. I don't even know why I'm upset. And your spouse is like, yeah, me neither. And <laughs> like, I wish you didn't wake up like that some days. And it's like feelings. They just, they're, they're here and they're gone and they can't be trusted. There has to be something else. There has to, and this is where in church, it becomes vitally important that church services and sermons and 
Bible studies and lessons don't simply become about feeding your feelings so you feel good about everything. And it's okay if they do that. But if that's all that's trying to take place when we gather as a community of followers of Jesus, is trying to make everybody feel good about things, so that when they walk out, that good feeling lasts them another week so they can come back, then we're missing out. There, there's something else. And, and we oftentimes will shy away from using certain words. And I get it. I understand it. But I don't think it's necessary. We, we don't like to use words like doctrine and theology. And yet those are the very things that help us understand that God's promises weren't just made, they were kept. It's our understanding of his word. It's our ability to study his word and to study history and to see how God has worked in the world that takes things from being words on a page to having depth and meaning and directing our life. It's the thing that gives us the ability to not have to trust our feelings for all of our truth because it's a truth that's bigger and more important, more powerful than our feelings. So today we're going to explore a doctrine. It's a doctrine that I believe can see you through those moments where you're not sure anyone can relate to you. How could anyone, especially God, really understand what I'm experiencing? We call this the doctrine of the incarnation. The doctrine of the incarnation. We'll get to that in just a moment. We're going to be in John chapter 1 if you have your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat or somewhere located around you. If you look around or ask the person uh, near you to hand you one or grab theirs and don't give it back, whatever. John chapter 1, we're going to be, and uh, let me remind you something about chapter 1. The first 18 verses in John chapter 1, just so you can picture this in your mind, they are what John calls and what, what we call the prologue to John's gospel. So John actually doesn't call it that. We do. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 is a prologue, meaning he introduces us to some truths that he spends the rest of his gospel unpacking. So we learn things like we've looked at the last few weeks, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. That's John chapter 1, verse 1. And we learn that that's Jesus. Jesus preexisted all of creation. Jesus is God. And then you learn about John the Baptist testifying to that truth. And today we learn, man, that truth, that preexistent Jesus became flesh in this doctrine of the incarnation. And then he'll spend the rest of his gospel unpacking these truths that we read in these first 18 verses. So let's stand together for the reading of God's word. John chapter one. We're going to start in verse 14 as we finish out the prologue in John's gospel. Beginning in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of, the fullness, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in close, closest relationship with the Father and has made him known. This is God's word. You can be seated. Let's unpack this truth a little bit and understand this doctrine of the incarnation. When John writes that the word, the logos, this is the first time since verse 1 where he's tying us back to that word that we explored a couple weeks ago. So he's saying the logos, the word, this is the full expression of who God is. But now he's taking it to another level. At first he said he was preexistent before all of creation. Now he's saying that same logos that was preexistent before creation has become flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
You can literally translate that word dwelling to mean he pitched his tabernacle or he lived in his tent. And those translations would bring to mind, if you know your Bible, and if you don't, that's okay, but in your Bible, that brings to mind two different things found in the book of Exodus. The first is tabernacle. So he created his tabernacle. That comes from Exodus chapter 25. If you'd like to take notes, this will be your sweet spot. We're going to just teach through some of this. But the tabernacle that was built, God commanded that they build the tabernacle. In Exodus 25, he says this, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Prior to this, God's glory was not able to dwell anywhere close to his people. And so he, erect, he told them to erect and build this tabernacle, and he dwelled in the tabernacle. They could still not be fully exposed to his glory, but the closeness of God and his people was coming about. It also brings to mind this tent of meeting, so the tabernacle, but the tent of meeting. In Exodus chapter 33, the tent of meeting is described as the place where Moses, where, where God would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. So in Exodus, Moses would go into the presence of God and get closer to the glory of God than any other person would. And what would take place is God would speak to him as though they were friends. Moses would then take that message that he got from speaking to God and come and deliver that message to the people. But what happened is being exposed to God's glory, Moses, his face would glow so bright that the people couldn't look at him. So they had to veil his face so he was able to convey the message that God had for his people. And this was Moses spending time with God. And now here in John chapter 1, he's saying, and that glory that Moses couldn't even be fully exposed to, that relayed God's self-expression to us in his word. You see, when Moses got his word, he would write it down. And we have the Ten Commandments, these tablets that he had. He said, in the same way that God conveyed through his glory to his people, the way that Moses did, now all the fullness of his glory is found in Jesus. So it's not partial. It's not waiting for a prophet. It's a different way. Now the fullness of God's glory is found in Jesus Christ, and we don't have partial access to it. We have full access to the fullness of God in Jesus. The writer of Hebrews explains how this kind of works in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says this, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many different times and in various different ways. So he would speak to these prophets in many ways and in different times. And what would happen is a prophet would hear from God and speak to God's people. Prophecy has been uh, misrepresented as like fortune telling, future telling. That's not the purpose of it. Biblical prophecy in those days, a prophet would receive a message from God, convey it to God's people, telling them what was coming so they would change the way they were living in the here and now. And the writer of Hebrews says, but now in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son, no longer by prophets, but by Jesus. Meaning Jesus comes and says, here's what's coming. The kingdom's coming. And here's how you need to live your life right now. And we hear from God through Jesus, the logos, the word of God, the very self-expression of God finds its fullness in Jesus. I think I could contend to you that I don't know that there's a more powerful statement in all of literature in the history of the world than that. When the word became flesh, the God who spoke the universe into being became flesh, became a man. And, and you, man, how is that possible? And people have racked their brains around like, okay, because all other religions say that God would never do that. God could never relate to people by becoming a person. It doesn't work that way. And so they try to explain away this verse in a variety of ways. One of the ways they try to explain it away is they say, 
that he came to dwell in a man, but he himself didn't become a man because God can't become a man. He just came and dwelled in a man like a possession of sorts. But that's not what John wrote. He did not say, and the word possessed a man. He says the word became a man. He fully became a man, fully God, fully man. Others will say that he just appeared like a man. He didn't actually take on human form because God being spirit can't actually become a physical man. And so there's no way that he could have done that. But again, we come back to it. He said he didn't just become like a man. He became flesh. He became a man. And John is very clear. As you translate this out, there is no other options. The word who he ties to Jesus in verses 14 to 18. So you could replace word with Jesus. Jesus became flesh. God became man. Another way that they'll explain it away is they say, uh, you know, well, he simply chose a man to become his son, but did not become the son. Like that's, again, that violates the whole passage. You look at verse 14 and using the word logos, the word, he ties it right back to verse one. And he's given us an entire theological statement. You're going to see why this is significant in a moment. But he says the word Jesus who was God and who was with God in the beginning, pre-existing all time, also became flesh. So the God who existed before everything else existed and spoke life into being became a man. Fully God, pre-existing all of time, fully man, becoming flesh. Fully God, fully man. And this is how John explains this. In the small little town in Bethlehem, the eternal son of God became a man. And this is why we hold to this truth, because we can know that Jesus existed before all of time, but there was a specific moment in time where God decided in that specific moment in time to become a man and was born as a baby. And the Apostle Paul describes this beautifully when he says, In him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. All of God's full deity living and expressed in the person of Jesus. Now, John also explains it this way. He says, this is the, full, the fullness of the deity of God. And because he became a man, now we have seen the glory of God fully. Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 and 35 describe it this way, the glory of God resting on this place. He said, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tabernacle at this time, this tent of meeting, because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled it completely. And it was too much for him. And John is saying in the very same way, now the full glory of God in Jesus is fully accessible to us without veiled faces. That because of Jesus, we can fully experience God's full glory. And he became like us. The God of the universe came to live in this broken, messed up world. So that he could relate to us. So that he could be like us. So that he could be the better version of us, but he could relate to us. It, it blows my mind, but I think for many of us, we've heard this so many times. You're like, yeah, I get it. Christmas, every year, I understand. But let the truth of this settle in. Think about this. You ever notice that if, from the first page of your Bible to the end, all the descriptions that we have of God, God is never described as the God of the rich. He's never described as the God of the wealthy or the powerful. Now, he is their God. He is the God of the rich, but he's not described that way. He's always identified as the God of the poor. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, you read that he's 
phrases like Psalm chapter 68 that says, he's the father to the fatherless, the defender of the widows. He speaks up for those who can't speak for themselves. He gives resources to those who are in poverty. He defends those who can't defend themselves. Now, what's fascinating about that is when you look at all of history, there are no other religions that identify their God that way. God is always identified as the God of the elite, above the elite. He's above the kings and the priests and the rulers and the authorities. He's always above. And our God is described that way too. He's above it all, but he also relates to the poorest of the poor. And this is what he's saying in the first 18 verses, that the God of the universe, who's above all, and that nothing was created without him, came all the way down in the form of a vulnerable baby and lived as a man. For the rest of his gospel, he's going to unpack why that's so important and how Jesus did that and the impact that it has on your life. But I want to come back to our original statement that when you're walking through a difficulty, how is it that you know that these aren't just words, that God didn't just make a promise to come and rescue, but he kept his promise, that you read that he loves you, but how do you know that he loves you? And I would contend it's not just about how good you feel after a worship service. It's not just how good you feel after going on a retreat or coming down off of a mountaintop experience. It's rooted in truth. And perhaps no other truth as powerful as the doctrine of the incarnation, that God became a man. That's how you know he kept his promise, because he can relate to you. So let me give you three truths about the incarnation that can help us as we wrestle with the answer to that question from time to time. The first is this. If Jesus did not become a man, then he could not be tempted. If he didn't become a man, the Bible tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way. That when he lived in this world, he was tempted. And the incarnation provides us with an advocate before the Father who actually relates to how we feel in the midst of our deepest temptations. Now, many of us were like, okay, hold on. Jesus was tempted in every way. Yes, he was tempted in every way. But you have to separate temptation and sin. And many people have a hard time with that. Temptation is not the same thing as sin. And if it is, we've got a big problem. Because the Bible says very explicitly, Jesus was tempted in every way and yet did not sin. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, I can't stop a bird from landing on my head, but I can stop him from building a nest. See, temptation, you can't stop the thoughts, but what you do with the thoughts leads you to sin. And what the Bible says is Jesus came and experienced all the temptations. So whatever you're going through, when you're tempted to give in and sin, you know that because of the incarnation, because uh, the word became flesh. I know that he gets the temptation that I'm feeling. He knows what it's like to feel tempted. And I'm too weak to overcome it from time to time. But he never failed. And it's his strength that helps me through my weakness in this temptation that was only made possible because the word became flesh. Second thing, if Jesus did not become a man, then he could not be an example. Does anybody remember the corny WWJD bracelets and shirts and any other way they could make money off that thing? Anybody remember those? Like three of us? Okay, they used to have these bracelets and like athletes would wear them and never actually, I don't even think they knew what they stood for half the time. And when I was, first became a Christian as a senior in high school, it was like people were still kind of wearing them. It was kind of wearing down by then. But, and then it picked back up again. It became like a fashion statement. And, and as, as corny as I thought it was, and as irritated that as I was by it, to be honest with you, I thought, uh, stop it with your corny phrases. There's a lot of truth to it. In fact, one of my favorite definitions of discipleship comes from a guy named Dallas Willard. 
And discipleship meaning apprenticeship. I apprentice under Jesus. I want my life to look like him. And so he said, the follower of Jesus in the everyday moments of their life answers this question over and over again for their whole life. What would Jesus do if Jesus were me? In this moment, faced with this decision or this season, faced with having to walk through this difficulty, what would Jesus do if Jesus were me? Well, we can answer that question because of the word becoming flesh, because Jesus lived a life here on this earth. And I can look at how he handled certain situations and how he made certain decisions. And I can model my life after him because he came and became a man and lived a perfect life. And so every decision he made in every circumstance he navigated, he did it perfectly. And so I can model my life after him because of this truth. So when I feel like nobody can understand the pressure that I'm under to have to make these decisions and lead this life and carry the weight of all that's going on around me, I can come back to this truth. Instead of letting my feelings lead me to despair, I can come back to the truth that says, oh, no, Jesus gets it. And you can answer the question, what would he do? If he were me in this moment, that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. The third thing, though, is this. If Jesus did not become a man, he could not die. He could not die. And perhaps the most important part of this truth of the incarnation, the word become flesh, is this. That you should never look at Bethlehem without also looking at Calvary. You can't. It's because the word became flesh that he was able to live the life you couldn't live. Because when faced with temptation, you fail. And it's because the word became flesh that he lived that life perfectly and without sin. And he died the death that you deserve to die because of your failure. And it's because the word became flesh that he didn't just get to live a life, but he died that death. And then he defeated death by resurrecting from the dead and changing everything about you. J.I. Packer beautifully summarizes it this way. He says, the crucial significance of the cradle at Bethlehem lies in its place in the sequence of steps down that led the Son of God to the cross of Calvary. And we do not understand it until we see it in its context. The taking of manhood by the Son is set before us in a way which shows us how we should ever view it, not simply as a marvel of nature, that the Word became flesh, and that's incredible, but rather a wonder of grace. A wonder of grace. And that's what John calls it. He says it's a grace. He calls it a beautiful grace. Look back at verses 16 and 17. He says this. Out of his fullness we have received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And this is what he's telling us. man. It's grace upon grace. I've used this analogy before, but he says the law was a grace in and of itself. It gave us grace. And you're like, how is that possible? Well, it was a gift to have the law, even though the law was powerless to fix what it showed us was broken. Forgive me for this analogy again, but it's the most helpful one that I've come across. The law of Moses was like an MRI. It's like an MRI. Anyone ever had an MRI? Can we raise our hand in church? Yeah, it's okay. We're here together. You go in and you have an MRI, and it takes this detailed picture of whatever is hurting in your body that the x-ray couldn't pick up. And it pins it down to this detail in the imaging of the ligaments and the muscles. And it says, there, right there in that ligament, that's where it's torn and that's why you're hurt. Well, you come out of that MRI machine and it's a grace. What a gift to be able to know exactly what's wrong inside of you. But you don't go back into that machine to fix it. You can't. 
And in the same way, the law does the same thing. It's a grace in that it shows us what's wrong. Here's what went wrong in your heart. Here's where you failed and gave into temptation. But it can't fix what it's showing you has gone wrong inside of you. And John is saying, but Jesus can. Jesus is not just the MRI. He can show you what's wrong, but he can fix what's wrong because he lived the life you couldn't live. And he died the death you deserved to die. And he defeated death, fixing what sin broke inside of you. So whatever you're walking through, and it's not for show. We don't come here to just show off. There's a lot of pain in this room right now. There's a lot of pressure in this room right now. There's a lot of disappointment and frustration in this room right now. And oftentimes we can come back and say, how does God possibly know what I'm going through? How do I know that I'm not alone in feeling what I'm feeling right now? And John says it's because the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So let me look at a couple examples of what had happened while he was making his dwelling among us that tells you that you're not alone. Here's how the Bible describes the life of Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verse 13, he was in the desert for 40 days being tempted by Satan. So Jesus understands your temptation. When you feel that pressure of temptation, you can know he understands it because he's lived it. Matthew chapter 8 says this, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus understands your poverty. When you don't feel like you have enough resources to provide for your family, when you're not sure that the money's going to stretch long enough to pay the bills, when you're not sure where that next meal's going to come from or how you're going to participate in that thing that all your friends are doing because you don't make enough and you haven't done enough, he understands what it feels like to feel like you don't have enough. He didn't even have a place to lay his head. John chapter 2, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Get out of here, he said. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Jesus understands frustration. When you feel frustrated and you're tempted to give into that frustration, Jesus understands what that temptation feels like as well. John chapter 4, verse 6, Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. This one, I love it. We love talking about John chapter 4 and the woman at the well, but that verse right there, Jesus was tired from the journey. So Jesus understands your exhaustion. He knows what it's like to feel so tired that you have to sit down to catch your breath. He knows what it's like when you're like, no one gets it. I'm raising these kids and it feels like I'm by myself all the time. And when they finally, he finally gets home or she finally gets home, whatever it is, whenever they get home, I feel like I'm so exhausted and nobody understands what I'm going through. You can know that because the word became flesh, Jesus knows what it's like to feel exhausted and to want to sit down and just i got to catch my breath. Luke chapter 13. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. Jesus understands your disappointment. When you had hopes that something was going to happen, that someone was going to show you that they actually cared, that they'd follow through on what they said, and then they didn't. And they disappointed you, and they let you down feel like nobody understands how disappointed I am. You can know that because the word became flesh, Jesus understands your disappointment. John chapter 6, from, the time, from that time on, many of his disciples turned their back and no longer followed him. Jesus understands your rejection. He knows what it's like to have people push back and reject you and make you feel like you're not wanted or cared for, despite the fact that you serve them and you care for them. And you've not done anything wrong. You just want to keep loving and showing them care. And yet they continue to reject you. Jesus knows exactly how you feel. Matthew chapter 26. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. 
See, Jesus understands your sorrow and your pain. And can I remind you of John chapter 11, when Jesus came and wept because he lost his friend sooner than he should have. So you're walking through a season of loss. When the person that you love died before they should have died, you can know that because the word became flesh, he knows how you feel and how much you miss them. He knows that grief well. Mark 15, again and again, they struck him and spit on him. And falling on their knees, they paid mocking homage to Jesus. He knows what it's like to be ridiculed, to be made fun of. He knows what you feel like, high school student, when it doesn't feel like you fit in with the in crowd and the cool kids. He knows what it feels like when you go to work and you feel like you have no friends. There's nobody here that's my friend. Everybody here makes fun of me because I'm a Christian and it just feels like I can't stand up for my faith any longer. The pressure is intense. How do I know that God understands how I feel? Oh, he understands. He understands. Jesus understands your loneliness too. So he cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You feel like nobody gets it because you feel alone and like all by yourself. He gets it. The word became flesh. Friends, can I tell you that Jesus doesn't only know everything about you because he was there in the beginning, though he does. He also knows everything about you and what you're experiencing because the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Because of that, we've seen his glory. You're not alone. Sometimes it feels like the weight and the pressure. It's intense. But he gets it. He's been there because our God didn't just make promises. He kept them. These weren't just words that were spoken. They were words that were lived out. We serve a good God who makes promises and keeps them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that we were not left here alone that we don't walk through anything by ourselves, that you're here. We thank you that the word became flesh and in doing so gave us an example to follow. Helps us understand that you know how we feel when we're tempted, when we're weak. Father, thank you for the life that he lived and dying and redefining our entire future. But Father, living in this life, it can be really hard and sometimes we can lose sight of it because we're told with every message that our culture sends our way to form all of our conclusions on our feelings. If I feel good, it's great. And if I feel bad, it's not. And God, that's, that's not truth. Your word is truth. So would you help us in those moments of weakness when we want to just make decisions on how we feel to come back to the truth, to know that we're not alone, to know that in our weakness, you're strong and that your grace is sufficient. And we'll trust you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.